If you have your Bible, turn me to John chapter 3. We're, I don't know, eight or nine weeks into the book of John. Our, our custom here is to work our way through the text of Scripture, kind of section by section. Uh, we believe that when you keep the text in the context, you're, you're better able to hear what God has to say, and so we want, we want to be careful to do that. Uh, this morning, we're going to be covering verses 12 through 15. A couple of nights ago, on Friday, it was family movie night at the Sloan's house, and so we, uh, we had dinner together, and Janine made some... Uh, some amazing caramel popcorn, and we retreated to the, the living room where we all sat down and watched a movie. And the movie that I had uh, selected for the evening was called Free Solo. Might have heard of this. It, was the, um, it won the uh, Academy Award for Best Documentary for 2019, so it's a brand new award winner. And it tells the story of 33-year-old rock climber Alex Honnold, the only person in the world to climb El Capitan, which is in Yosemite, without any ropes, any harness, um, any safety uh, mechanism. So one misstep on this 3,000-foot uh, uh, wall, and uh, that's, you know, that's absolutely that, that's the end of your life. You're dead. Here's a picture of what I'm talking about. This is uh, from, from the movie. So you can see, just, uh, you can see how frightening uh, this is. Can you imagine the insanity of trying to do something like this um, with ropes, but, but without ropes. I mean, this is just unbelievable. Um, it was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences. Just watching the movie was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences that I've had in a long time. Here's, here's one other pic, um, which just give you a sense of the, look, of the, uh, the magnitude of this. Um, social commentators call this the single greatest athletic feat in the history of competition. Um, it's not only an entertaining movie, though, it's also a movie that's, that's actually deeply theological. Um, at one point in the movie, the, the filmmaker asks uh, Alex, like, why would you do this? Why, why would you put your life on the line? What, what would possess you to try to do this? And he says in a moment of real candor, he says, you know, I've always longed to experience perfection. I've always wanted to know what would it be like to, to experience perfection. He says, this is, actually, this is the closest thing you can possibly get to perfection because one misstep, one wrong, wrong move, and that's the end of your life. Well, when they interview Alex's mother a little bit later, really toward the middle of the film, um, we get a better sense of what drives Alex. Um, the, when he was 18, his dad died, and his mom, who's interviewed in the movie, is a very a very hard woman um, who accepted nothing but perfection from her son. In fact, Alex says in the movie that her, his mom's two favorite sayings growing up that he heard over and over again were, good enough is not good enough, and almost doesn't count. And so even though she didn't realize it, of course, Alex's mom really served as the, the personification of biblical law unflinching demand for perfection. See, all the commands, all the demands, all the expectations, all of the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, all that represent the category of the law, they are unblinking in what they require, complete and total obedience. Not just obedience in action, but obedience in thought, motive, word, and deed. The Apostle Paul says, Cursed is everyone who does not keep all the requirements of the law. And law without gospel, judgment without 
good news is not only always condemning, but it always leads to a weighed down life, a life of the, the endless burden to try to achieve perfection on our own. And what is the desire for perfection really? Is it not the longing to experience God's acceptance? This is really what it is, whether we would articulate it this way or not. Perfection, the desire to be perfect, is really the yearning to be approved by the God who made us. And this is what drove Nicodemus, as we saw last week. Last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 12 of John 3. This is what drove Nicodemus, this yearning to be approved by God, this desire to be accepted by God, this is what drove him to go approach Jesus with this question. Remember how it all went down last week. Uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't really respond to Nicodemus' statement at all. He doesn't really address what Nicodemus has said. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, wait a second. Hold on a second. I mean, like, how does that work? Can a man enter again into his mother's womb when he is old and be born again? To which Jesus says, first of all, gross. That's disgusting. Um, he doesn't actually say, that's what I would have said. But Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand what the new birth is all about. You don't understand how this thing works. Now, last week we looked at the, the results of the new birth from this passage. And we looked at what happens to a person when he or she is born again. They have a new hope they have a new vision. They're able to see the kingdom of God advancing in ways they never could before. And they also have new affections. And this morning, as we continue to work our way through John's gospel, we're going to see the extent of forgiveness that's offered by Jesus through the new birth. Again, as we jump back into this beautiful conversation. So uh, John chapter 3, let me read verses 12 through 15. The word of God reads this way. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, Jesus says, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, one aspect of the new birth that, again, we talked about last week is the ability to understand spiritual things. So, so the unbeliever who's not been born from above is unable to understand spiritual things. Jesus asked Nicodemus rhetorically in verse 12, if you don't understand the earthly things that we're talking about that I'm sharing with you, how could you possibly understand heavenly things? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now there's a lot of confusion about what this actually means. Okay, so it doesn't mean that a person who is an unbeliever 
you know, reads the Bible and says, you know, I, I don't understand any of this. Like this, none of this makes sense to me. Reads it and he can't understand what the words are, what the flow is. No, that's not what it means. What, what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is when he says spiritual things are spiritually discerned is except for a work by the Spirit, we cannot understand spiritual things in a way that is personally significant. So there have actually been some really good commentators, uh, some, some books written on, on books of the Bible by people who are unbelievers, who, are prof- who don't profess to know Jesus. They can understand the logic and the flow and the outline and, of course, the linguistics, but they don't understand any of it in a way that has any personal significance. They don't understand how they fit in the story. They don't understand that, that Jesus died for their sin. They don't understand that it was their sin who put Christ on the cross. They don't understand that they're the ones who need to repent and believe in Jesus. So it's not as though it's just sort of a bunch of nonsense or stuff they can't understand. A person who has not been born from above cannot understand the Scriptures in a way that's personally significant. As believers, we understand because this is a gift from God. We understand that the sin that that Jesus talks about in the rebellion, this is actually a reference to us. We understand that, that Christ's work on the cross is actually on our behalf. It's actually our only hope for salvation. And as believers, we're not people who have had the wherewithal or the sort of clever insight to sort of grasp this. You know, one, way, one time we just sort of came to this understanding on our own. No, anything we get in a spiritual sense is because it has been given to us. I mean, doesn't that, must that not lead us to become patient and humble and gracious and generous with those who don't get it, those who are outside of Christ? This recognition that everything we have, we've been given. I had a, an elder who was a, a co-elder with me years ago, and I was, I was working with this small group of people, and I was teaching, and I was studying and praying. and I was just pouring my heart out to them. I was so frustrated though because it seemed like everything I was saying was just kind of sitting above. It was not sinking in. They weren't getting it. And I was sitting at lunch over Wendy's with this elder who became a very good friend of mine. And I said, you know, I just don't understand. I feel like I'm doing everything I can. And he said, you know, the only reason that you get it, the only reason that I get it is because it's been given to us. That's the only way. That leads to humility. But even so, there is a limit to what we've been given. God's ways are above our ways. We've never entered into the divine counsel, so to speak. So we don't know what's going on. We don't know what heaven is like. This is what Jesus reminds Nicodemus of. No one has entered into the divine counsel of God to know all the inner workings of heaven. And then we get to verses 14. Look at this again. This is so rich. And as Moses lifted up the serpent... In the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So if you're new with us or you're visiting with, with us, we don't normally just take work on just such a short passage, kind of three or four verses. But I wanted to do that because there's something we talk about all the time at Capshaw. And that is how the Bible is actually, it's not a, a self-improvement manual. The Bible's not a guide on how to be a better husband, wife, parent child, whatever. I mean, those are, you know, praise God, those things are in there. But that's not the primary focus of the Bible. The Bible is a love story 
uh, God's love for a sin-cursed world, and it's a story of which Jesus Christ is the locus, the subject, and the object. And it's clear throughout the Scriptures, but it's very, very clear and in our face here. What Jesus does with Nicodemus is He takes him back to this part of the Hebrew Scriptures, which Nicodemus would have known well. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures. He takes him back to this story of the Israelites in the desert. And at this point in Israel's history, they'd been wandering around in the desert for nearly 40 years. And as you can imagine, they're getting very, very restless, very restless. This is 40 years of heat exhaustion, 40 years of hiking, 40 years of eating the same thing. And this had taken its toll on the people of Israel. Janine and I uh, had the opportunity to lead 52 people uh, to Israel last February, and just a, a, a beautiful, remarkable trip. And on our last day uh, in Israel, the two of us and another couple, we were walking back from the old city of Jerusalem to our hotel, which was in the modern uh, city. It was probably less than two miles, um, but we, were walk- we, we really didn't know where we were going. We had one of those paper uh, maps, but it was kind of confusing. And it was, again, another guy and I and our respective wives, and the ladies were starting to get restless. They said, are you sure this is the right way? Like, I don't remember seeing that particular building. Was that a raindrop that I just felt? Shouldn't we stop and ask someone? And it seemed like the questions were endless, even though we'd only been walking 20 minutes. Well, the Israelites wandered around for 40 years, 40 years. And yet they were not making any progress. They were moving in a circular direction. And so they become very, very frustrated. They had watched their own grandparents and even some of their own parents die through this journey. They had all they can take. So Numbers 21 tells us this in verses 5 through 9. The people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now we read that and we say, that's kind of a bizarre story, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that's kind of a strange way to approach the situation here. While the Israelites see their friends dying and even they're slowly dying themselves through this poison that's coursing through their veins, the people repent and, and God, uh, they, they plead with Moses, ask God to take away the serpents, just, Please tell him to take away these snakes. And God has Moses make a fiery serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole so that everyone who looks at it will live. Now, I say it's a bizarre story because it seems like, seems like God is asking the, the, uh, Moses do something, asking the people to do something that he's actually previously commanded them not to do. These folks knew the Ten Words. They knew the Ten Commandments. And one of the ten, the second actually says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, serpent was certainly something that was on the earth, wasn't it? 
A serpent was known to, to have crawled on the earth. So strange that God would ask Moses to, to make a, a carved image of a serpent. Aaron, Moses' brother, had previously violated this command, and it resulted in God's severe judgment. 3,000 people died. So you know the people of Israel are thinking, now, has Moses lost his mind here? Why would, he, why would he do this? Why would he make this image and actually ask us to look upon it? On top of all that, the Israelites knew that what happened in the Garden of Eden, that it was the serpent who deceived Eve and introduced suffering and sin into the world. So they, would, they had to have been thinking that looking on a, at a snake on a pole was a very strange way to go about this. But this is God's solution. But why? Have you ever been to an emergency room or maybe you've been by a doctor's office or you've seen an ambulance drive by and you've seen this symbol on it, a pole with a snake on it? It's called uh, the caduceus. And anything that has to do with medicine or, or, or helping people has this symbol typically somewhere on it. And maybe you've seen it a hundred times. Maybe you've never really noticed what it was all about, that there was a serpents on a pole. Well, we, we don't usually think about where it comes from, but it actually go, comes from this story in Numbers 21. But it's not a story that can be understood in isolation. In fact, Jesus says this story is actually about Him. See, God didn't have to, he didn't have, to have Moses create, uh, make this snake with a pole on it, which was really just a cross without a top. God could have said to the snake-bitten people, you are healed, and they would have been healed. Now, he could have said, he could have said, you know, I really, I want you to do something. You got to do something as evidence that your repentance is genuine, but he doesn't do that. He just says, if you look on this, you will live. What God was doing by asking Moses to, to make this, this snake with a cross on it at which the people who were dying could look and live, he was setting the stage. He was setting the stage for the ultimate emblem of healing, the cross of Jesus on which Jesus himself would be lifted up and all who looked at him or believed on him would be healed, experience the truest form of healing, that is reconciliation with God. Jesus wasn't saying in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, you know, I'm going to be lifted up just kind of like the, the serpent was lifted up in the desert. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was that whole account was actually about me. That was about me. This testified of me. One uh, terrific New Testament scholar, Dennis Johnson, writes this. What at first glance seems to be a simple analogy, as Moses lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, shows itself when read in the context of John's gospel to be a profound disclosure of the superior mediatorial work of Christ over Moses. Thus, a strange incident that might have seemed to involve primitive magic in which a cure came only by staring at an image of the judgment itself is shown to prefigure the sun's absorption of sin's venom when lifted up under the curse of the cross. Let me say it a little more simply. When God instructed Moses to intercede for his people, by lifting up a cross for them to look at for salvation, he was foreshadowing for us the one who would be lifted up for his people by being lifted up to a cross. Now, I want to very quickly sort of extrapolate from this three, uh, 
Three points. And here's the first one. The disease we're all infected with is sin, which manifests in a rebellion that leads to death. So the disease that the, the ancient Israelites were infected with was the disease that came from the venomous snakes. And the solution uh, was to look on the, this the statue. is pretty straightforward, and, and they, were, they were saved as a result. But in the case of Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus, Jesus points out that man cannot save himself. Through, through no amount of trying, earning, striving, laboring can man actually save himself. He can only be saved by a supernatural act of God, by being born again by the Spirit through faith in Jesus. And he says in verse 18, which we'll get to in a couple weeks or maybe next week, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, because man sins because he is a sinner. He is by nature and choice a rebel under God's curse, constantly inclined to go his own way. Theologians refer to this as the psychogenetic legacy of original sin. See, at the heart of of the Christian faith is actually a proper understanding of biblical anthropology, what, what humanity is truly like. And it begins with this recognition, we're always far worse than we believe we are. We're always far worse than we believe we are. We are infected. You've heard me say it before. It doesn't mean that that no one can ever do anything good. When you look around, we see people doing good things. We see people doing acts of kindness. We see people helping and serving one another. It doesn't mean that no one ever does anything good. But what it means is even our best efforts are stained by sin, hopelessly selfish, perverse desires for personal glory. An insistent, insistence on being recognized, honored when we do something right. Our real problem is not what's out there. Our real problem is what's inside of us, namely hearts that are selfish, self-loving, judgmental, and dark, which means we need something other than a moral improvement plan to save us. We need a heart transplant. We need something from outside of us to correct the problem. That brings us to the second point I want to make this morning. It's this. The only hope for healing is the Son of Man lifted up. The disease that we all suffer with is sin. The only hope for healing is the Son of Man lifted up. In 1653, the English minister John Brinsley the Younger, not to be confused with John Brinsley the Elder, who was his father, that's the way people used to distinguish between father and son. You didn't have any juniors or, or seconds or thirds or whatever. You had the elder and, and the younger. There's a, uh, there's a secular rapper. His name is Young Jeezy. His real name is actually Jeezy the Younger. His father is Jeezy the Elder. Um, no, that, that's one of those jokes my kids said, don't, try, don't, don't do that. But uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. Uh, that's actually, I have no idea about young Jeezy's uh, name heritage. Um, but, but John Brinsley the Younger, the son of John Brinsley the Elder, preached a sermon in 1653 called The Mystical Brazen Serpent with a Magnetical Virtue Thereof, or Christ Exalted on the Cross. And he spent time in this sermon explaining how Numbers 21 is actually one of the most beautiful pointers to Jesus in all the Scriptures. He said, we dare not make this about some moral imperative without seeing Christ in it. 
And then he says, as he closed his sermon, he closed with this, The Israelites being stung with these deadly serpents, they had no means of cure, but only this brazen serpent being lift up. This was to them the sovereign and only antidote and remedy. Even thus, mankind being mortally stung by that old serpent, brought into perishing condition by sin, they have no other remedy, no other salvation, but Christ and Christ lifted up on the cross. The only hope for healing for any of us. The only hope for healing for you this morning. My only hope for healing is the Son of Man lifted up. Now, how would He be lifted up? He would be lifted up on the cross as our substitute. He would be lifted up in the resurrection as God's confirmation that this sacrifice was enough. He would be lifted up in the ascension where he would rightful, he would take his rightful place at the right hand of God where even now he intercedes for us and prays for us. The Son of Man was lifted up and when we look on the Son, which is a euphemism for believing in Jesus Christ, we believe on the Son that he was lifted up on the cross to die for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, that He's now for us and not against us, then we receive by faith all the benefits of Jesus' cross work on our behalf. It was, it's not a coincidence that all the people had to do was look at the serpent and live. Salvation is not something we earn, something we receive by believing. Now this brings us to our third point this morning. The healing provided by the Son is immediate and comprehensive. If you've been around anyone who's been given a clean bill of health, maybe they had cancer and by God's grace through the right treatment and strategies, they, they, they were pronounced cancer-free. Maybe, maybe they had some other ailment. Maybe it was something that no one could diagnose or figure out. And then all of a sudden, God sends the right person in their path and, and they're, they're healed. If you've ever been around anyone who's healed, you know how powerful this is. Healing leads to joy. Healing produces gratitude. Healing leads to hope. And the healing that Christ provides is certainly about forgiveness, yes. But it's so much more than that. It's about being made whole before God. It's about being made well before God. It's about being made right with God. In the case of the Israelites in the desert, when they looked upon the uplifted serpent on the cross, they were instantly healed. The venom, again, that was coursing through their veins no longer had the power to destroy them. They were made well. They were made whole. They looked and they lived. It was that simple. In the case of the salvation that Jesus explains to Nicodemus as he goes back to this great story in Numbers 21, that salvation is also immediate and comprehensive. The salvation that Jesus provides is not just healing from a disease, but a relief from the condemnation and tyranny of sin in our own lives. Whoever believes, Jesus says, will not perish but have eternal life. And that new eternal life, it actually begins right now. It's not simply future. It's not simply eschatological. It begins right now. This is why Jesus explains it as being born again. What is at the most fundamental level actually takes place. It was the very thing that Alex Honnold 
when he climbed El Capitan with no ropes or no harnesses or no safety net, he was seeking so desperately to find. Just a moment to know what perfection is like. Just a moment to know that God is for me and not against me. Just a second to know that God is actually on my side and has approved of me. Can you imagine the sort of relief? With a clean slate, we are made new, granted God's approval, assured of His love for us. We can now know that God is for us and not against us, that He actually likes us. He actually delights in us. When we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ, there is a presence of a new power at work in us. That new power is none other than the risen Christ. We are united with Christ. He indwells us. If you are in Christ this morning, if you've turned from your sin, if you believed on Jesus Christ, you have the power of the resurrection working in you and for you. Christ in you. And the presence of Christ transforms an empty existence, a purposeless existence, to one that is filled with hope. The guilt and shame that once plagued us are released And the recognition of God's love fills us and overwhelms us. Where there was once a crushing weight, the endless pursuit of perfection, now there is the experience of freedom and rest and laughter and delight. As I said last week, God is in the business of turning chaos into beauty, creating life out of death, and He's still doing that. He's still doing that. He's working in your life through your storms and through your failures and through your trials and through your setbacks. He's working to keep you close to Himself, to strengthen your faith, to deepen your joy, to produce in you a weight of glory that you will enjoy for eternity. If you are in Christ this morning, God has moved heaven and earth to bring you to Himself, and He will stay with you. He will not leave you. He is doing something for your good this morning. Now, I want to I wrap up this morning with a, a, an illustration. I wasn't sure if I was going to have time for this, but I think it's, I, I want to share this. I heard uh, pastor and author John Piper tell this story a few years ago. Um, he was, he's at a church, Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, and um, and they had two services. And in each of those services, they also had opportunities for uh, adult small groups. So you could go to small group and go to service or go to service, go to small group. So anyway, uh, one morning, one Sunday morning, a man and woman went to small group. And during that small group, the man had a, a cardiac arrest and died. And John Piper said he was told of that, what happened as he was finishing up the first service. And he said, I like, I didn't, I really, I mean, he was young at this point. So I didn't know what to do. I'd never experienced this before. I mean, I personally have had people who've fallen out. We've had to call the ambulance, but I've never had anyone die during a service. So he said, I don't know what to do. He said, I thought to myself, should, should we cancel the service? Should we just hold a sort of a season of prayer? What should we do? And he said, he had 30 minutes to make a decision before the second service. He's decided, you know, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to let the church family know. And I'm just going to pray. We're going to worship together. And I'm going to preach the same sermon. So the second service started, and he introduced the service by praying for this lady and letting the church family know that her husband had died that very morning. 
And they sang songs together and found comfort in Jesus. And then he said, I got up and I preached the same sermon. But he said, when I got up to preach, he said, to my shock, he said, I saw in the balcony that woman who had returned to church. And he said, I immediately thought, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why would you come back? You just lost your husband. He said, I just prayed for her, and I preached that same sermon on the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And he said, after the service, she came down to the front. And John Piper said, I just hugged her, and I just squeezed her, and I said, I I love you, and I'm so sorry, and I'm I'm praying for you. And then he said, in in just a a moment of honesty or or candor, he said, I, I looked at her, and I said, you came back. You came back. Why, why did you come back? And she said, and he said, I'll never forget. She said, I had to hear the word of God. I had to hear from this God who is my healer, who is the rock under my feet. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus about this great salvation, he takes them all the way back to this story in Numbers to show This is all about Him. This God who is the healer. This God who is our redeemer. This God who is our ever-present help in trouble is the same God that we can know personally and intimately through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.